in progress. Welcome, everyone. My name is Scott Shepard, and I'm the host of the city's first podcast. We're really excited to have here today, Gerald Posky. He is the CEO of Swift Cities, and this is our fifth episode of the city's first podcast. We're really excited to kind of talk about everything related to real estate, land use, and future mobility. So a little bit about Gerald, I don't get to give his bio here. He's the CEO and co-founder of Swift Cities, a transportation solution that revolutionizes mobility and transforms real estate, enabling more vibrant and sustainable communities. Prior to Swift Cities, Gerald was the project ex executive in charge of transportation planning for Google's real estate division, where he was tasked with finding sustainable, cost-effective means to move tens of thousands of employees and in the process create more livable cities for their corporate campuses and surrounding communities. Swift Cities was spun out to take the new technologies developed at Google and bring them to the global market for real estate developers and municipalities. So Jaral, really happy to have you today and uh, would love to kind of deep dive on some of these issues in the post-COVID city. So thanks for joining us. Oh, great to be here, Scott. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes. Maybe you can kind of tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you're working on right now. Well, Swift Cities is about that new transportation concept, like you said, that's providing sustainable and cost-effective mobility uh, to really build our cities better. We're not just a mobility product. We think of it as a real estate product. And the key was a price point that private developers can start with to, to implement change and bring change that makes sense for them, that then carries over to how our cities are built. This is a topic I have been focused on since I was in college, which is a very long time now. Uh, my wife, you can ask her and she will say she knew what she was getting into. <laughs> I think my wife would say the same thing about me too. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. I, yeah, she, yeah, she can't say uh, this was a surprise. Um, improving transportation, improving lives, improving cities really has been just a part of a winding journey for me. My undergrad was in Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. I then went to graduate school in Ann Arbor. I yeah. did political work in D.C. Go <laughs> Go Wolverines, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, all this time I was spending my own time and my own vacation money, uh, you know, my, my money, my vacation time to go to transportation conferences. It wasn't my core job, but I was reviewing papers for the National Science Foundation and just getting to meet everybody in the field. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it kind of came back full circle for you. And it, it's, you know, what is that quote from uh, Michael Corleone in the Godfather 3? You know, you try to leave and they pull you back in. That's how it is with me in transportation and urbanism. So, <laughs> yeah, there was a key. There was a key moment. I said, I, "This has got to be my career. I'm going to go back to grad school." My first instinct was to go to engineering school, and then it, then I realized, you know what? I've been going to these conferences, and the problem isn't that we're one engineer short of a solution. Mm -hmm. The problem was I was meeting people with great ideas who had no idea how to implement them and how to implement and and get the business side of change. So yeah. I chose business school, which was. I was the outlier. I was the one transportation person at the time in my business school class, which is a very popular topic now. But back then, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. making consulting all these things in transportation, yeah. uh, what are you doing here? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, but that was the key is to coming at this from a business perspective. Yeah, unique. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a unique angle in it, but it's something that's really relevant certainly nowadays. So I think we'll just uh, kind of get started here and uh, focus on our first topic and question. So um, basically what I'd like to know is, or would like to focus on is uh, the kind of the post-COVID city. So how has COVID changed, in your opinion, the land use and transportation nexus? Really broad question, but uh, I'd like to get your thoughts and I might layer in some ideas as well too. 
Yeah, I think COVID is going to get credit for a lot of change that was just beginning to happen uh, and probably would have happened anyway, but it has been greatly accelerated. If you took a look at Google's building plans just before COVID and saw what was on the table in San Jose and Mountain View, there's these wonderful mixed-use campuses. Uh, I think we at Google had already identified that, you know, the day of long commutes out to boring suburban office complexes, those were over. Even before COVID, people were, it was very clear, employees who used to like the shuttles and the, and the other ways of, you know, it was a feature, it was a perk. You didn't love it, but, you know, it was a nice, it was the best you could do in the situation. The tolerance was going down. And so already Google had shifted from corporate campuses to really big mixed-use campuses where there's housing, there's entertainment, there's open space uh, and offices, but it was all going to be together. So that change was already happening, but it was only a few people on the vanguard who saw it coming. Then when COVID happened, it became very obvious, oh, long commutes aren't the way we have to do it. How can we make it where uh, we have a better work-life balance? And so you're going to see more of that. You're going to see that trend accelerating to say, uh, it can go one of two ways. It could be that more people just live farther away and those three days that they do commute are very long and painful, but they can they can tolerate it. But I think we're going to see a lot more demand for this mixed use as opposed to the isolated uh, corporate park, housing park. Uh, um, so I think that's an acceleration of a trend that was happening, but it's overall and I anticipate it being a good trend. Yeah, no, certainly. Um, yeah, COVID was the catalyst. Uh, in the U.S., here in Europe, certainly on an urbanistic level, in terms of just uh, the new uh, infrastructure for shared mobility, you know, pop-up bike lanes, uh, you know, pedestrian facilities, and really getting people to active transportation, but also the mixing of land uses. Certainly, back in um, the the use case of the Bay Area and uh, Silicon Valley, um, in terms of thinking about land use and urbanism. Uh, kind of taking a lot of these ideas that were on the shelf in ideas that were born out of traditional neighborhood development, out of the Congress for the New Urbanism from Peter Calthorpe and all the new urbanists who really had a lot of these ideas that were really kind of um, introduced in a more conceptual level for kind of residential or mixed use development, uh, working with more vanguard real estate developers throughout the 1990s and 2000s. Certainly when I was in graduate um, uh, city planning curriculum, uh, you know, we all focused on these types of, you know, uh, landmark projects. But again, I think that now the corporate sector and certainly the public sector has all kind of converged into this real I would say holistic thinking around the the mixing of uses, as well as the layering of of uh, transportation, uh, transit oriented development, things that were really much more I would say segregated before are are really starting to reach a, a critical mass now. Um, and again, yes, there's one let's say tendency to have the monster commutes of people living in Stockton or Tracy or Modesto driving over 580 Altamont Pass every day into San Jose or uh, you know Mountain View. You'll still have that. But I think that, you know, given these new kind of, let's say, uh, transformations, um, uh, the, the tide is turning. And, and certainly with the uh, elimination of parking minimums that all cities are doing, certainly now with San Jose, California, others, uh, you're seeing a real kind of acceleration of these trends. So it's, it's a really exciting time in urbanism and mobility. Um, so getting to that, let's talk about our next topic, which is around uh, a little bit more of a technical term, uh, TN, TDM or transportation demand management. 
And we may or may not need to define that, but maybe if you can give us your thoughts on how could transportation demand management strengthen the hybrid office model, which obviously has accelerated during um, during and post, let's say, uh, you know, uh, pandemic time. Yeah, the TDM roles that I'm most familiar with are more on the corporate side, the business side of reducing traffic to a, a property, a corporate campus or an office park. It, you know, it could be one company or it could be a group of companies. Uh, there's a little bit of public sector involvement, but it's more private sector led demand reduction. And that job has definitely gotten harder. Uh, a lot of programs that people would do, whether it was a shuttle bus or uh, transit passes for people, you know, those, those had a certain payoff when people were using them five days a week. When they're using them just two or three days a week, suddenly the cost per use just doubled. So there's a bit of a, of a concern, especially with a lot of uh, corporate budgets under scrutiny right now. I think the TDM world is, a, is at a bit of a, a nervous point. Yeah. And as long as they're defined as my job is to bring people to our corporate campus, my job is to bring people you know, to and from our office park, and it's just a one time a day, one way, you know, one round trip a day situation, they're going to be uh, challenged. Yeah. However, if you do think about this, this drift toward more mixed use developments and saying, oh, it's not just two trips a day and, and maybe only three times a week now, but we're moving people around, we're getting them to lunch, we're getting them to entertainment, we're getting them into what they're doing after work. Now TDM makes much more sense and that you're solving the whole trip needs. You know, maybe there's uh, there's shared cars for the weekend, uh, but when you've got housing there and you can meet so many more of their needs and you don't just define it as my job is only their work home to work commute. Now TDM has a lot of opportunities to, to really change the game. Um, and it brings new tools to the table. I think TDM to date has been a lot about carpooling, uh, taking the bus, taking the train. But when you've got housing nearby, when you've got entertainment, when you've got lunch opportunities nearby, well, now it is about micromobility, on-demand transit, and these things that can solve the short distance travel, which I think most TDM in the past was mostly about carpooling and, and trains for long distance travel. Uh, and, and they didn't have a good, other than, other than some biking initiatives, it was hard to work on the shorter distance trips. Well, well put, well said. Yeah, it, it was really focused on that uh, dual peak commute Monday through Friday, uh, drive to the park and ride and uh, take a train or commuter train, in, you know, close to your uh, corporate campus or uh, office location. And again, this uh, deconstruction of mobility and urbanism in the COVID city or now post-COVID city towards the hybrid work model and this blending of uses and blending of activities to kind of match that complete door-to-door -door journey, uh, whether we want to use the cliche first mile, last mile, but but basically coupled with your entire um, movement footprint is, is really important because I think now we're focused not necessarily on commuters anymore, but uh, humans, users, citizens that interact on a much, much more holistic level, uh, you know, when we layer in land use, uh, real estate development, uh, transportation strategies and really delivering better outcomes in the public and private sector. So I think it's once again to repeat my previous uh, comment. It was it's exciting times because it, it's really kind of uh, making us rethink our previous uh, paradigms or previous uh, thoughts uh, in terms of moving people around. Yeah, one thing that's interesting uh, among the TDM people that I know and some of the peer companies of Google. 
where that sits in the company is a very interesting look at the company and, and the job and the real estate division as a whole. So in some of our peers, the TDM job set within human resources. Uh, it was an employee perk and somebody had to manage as a perk. And when it comes to budget time, should we spend more money on this or that or, or the other perk? Um, and it was you know, treated as a cost. Uh, in a few places, it is uh, especially some large developments, you know, uh, multi-tenant multi developments. A developer built a million square feet. The city said, you better run a TDM program. So it's run by the developer, the property owner, um, as an obligation. It may, it may sit under public affairs because it's what the government told us we had to do. Uh, Google and just a few other places puts it under real estate as it's a strategic part of how you build out your area. If you have less people driving, you can spend less energy, less cost on parking, which is a major expense. And in return, that space that used to be to parking is now can be open space, it can be new office, it can be all sorts of things that are more valuable that actually affect users uh, as a positive and not as a negative, which is just space dedicated to cars. So seeing where people sit in the, in the corporate world tells you a lot about how their job is viewed and what the opportunities are viewed here. And so Google is one of, one of a few that view it as a resource, as, as an asset that leverages the, the real estate portfolio to get more out of it. And so I think that's a, it's a neat distinction to make uh, as to org structure really matters. Yeah. And it's much more holistic. And again, it falls under the mantra of uh, putting land to its highest value, though, whatever that value is. Is it open space? Is it, uh, you know, uh, higher density or is it other mixed uses? So it, it, it really kind of uh, continues along that thought process. So that's, that's a good point you make. Um, all right. Our next uh, topic or question I'd like to kind of bring up, uh, and you mentioned this before, is around um, kind of uh, new uh, mobility strategies. So I'd like to talk about how can on-demand transit, or to use more of the uh, North American term, microtransit, as well as micromobility, so that's uh, e-scooters, e-bikes, et cetera, how can they collectively lead towards or lead to sustainable modal shift, you see? Yeah, I think there it's uh, important to talk. start with some data, uh, and then uh, maybe I'll share some data that we haven't published yet, but we've worked out. Uh, I think one is to understand how many trips of what kind happen and what the potential is for on-demand and micromobility. So in the US, we have the National Household Travel Survey, and it tells us that roughly, more or less, trips are roughly uh, split. About a third of all trips that people take in a day are less than a mile. Uh, a third are one to five miles, and only a third are more than five miles. I think people normally think of the long-distance commute as being the norm, and it's really a small, small fraction of the daily trips. Um, and so, you know, I see, especially in the startup world in transportation, I see a lot of people chasing this tiny, tiny segment of 20 mile commuters and trying to make that better through a tunnel or a flying car or something. That's a fraction, uh, a minuscule fraction of the overall trips. Two thirds of all trips are these really short distances. And so when you know that, then it's obvious how on-demand transit and microbility can really help with that. Uh, and even in those longer distances, often the challenge is getting to your transit station, whether it's uh, a hub for flying vehicles or just a hub for traditional trains and buses. Uh, so the first mile, last mile problem is there. Um, and I think a lot of it goes back to density, which I'm bringing up just the other facts I'll bring up. So urban density, that's a passion point of mine. 
it's really the thing that determines what transportation modes can be effective. Uh, if it's, you know, we, we kind of know that a train needs a lot of density to be effective, a bus needs less. It's true all the way through the on-demand modes, um, even tunnels or flying cars, you know, only work at certain distances and the densities and they're not effective at certain other ones. One of the things what we've realized, um, I think some others have led to say, City, there's a lot of possible densities. Is there a right density? Is there an ideal density? Lloyd Alter calls it Goldilocks density. Mm -hmm. There's some known densities that. that people love. Excuse me. Yeah, as I've heard of that. Yes, yes. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's Paris, it's Barcelona, it's even Palo Alto. It's a suburban city, but has this wonderful, great downtown. And we've got some research that shows why those exist and what's special about them and why they're rare. Um, these, these cool areas like that are places that can't be served fully by cars. Um, our data shows that most density in city is at one of two places that are very different, either downtowns that have the high rises and are served by mass transit or car dominated areas where you have large parking lots, you may have some structured parking, uh, but it really reaches a point uh, that it's uh, maybe about 30 dwelling units per acre, if you know that those terms, and that's about all you can squeeze out of a car dominated area. Anything between that and massive downtowns are very rare. Uh, and so this Goldilocks zone is hard to build and it traces back to the fact that there's not a transportation system that can support this mid density that even though everybody likes it, it's not dense enough to run a train system. So Palo Alto happens to be the number two station on the Caltrain line, but it wouldn't have justified building a train just for downtown Palo Alto. Um, but, but you need something, you need the fact that it's number two is what gets hundreds of thousands of people, not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds of people to thousands of people to get there without a car, which is enough to support those restaurants, those coffee shops and that environment that you're after. Just density makes such a difference. Um, even microtransit, I mean, shared scooters we see don't work in sprawling suburban areas. They're just, you know, there's one every 15 blocks. It's not enough for people to count on. And they don't work well in super dense areas where the sidewalks are already full of people, but they work great in the Goldilocks zone where that density is just right, that you can count on a scooter being nearby, but there's enough space that they're not cluttering the, the, the area. Uh, so collectively, I think it all boils down to density uh, and building at that right density. And, and now what we're doing at Swift Cities is enabling that right density to be built at a cost that the private sector can step up and do it. Mm -hmm. No, I think you, you said it, you hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, I, when, when you think about density and mixing of uses, that really has to kind of lead the discussion. And that's what has been missing in a lot of the different, let's say, mobility innovations during, let's say, the quote unquote smart cities movement over the last four or five years is, introducing, uh, let's say, solutions that are looking for problems, but uh, not missing out on, like you mentioned, the Goldilocks zone and the uh, contextual uh, issues that are really first and foremost in terms of layering in these types of uh, innovations that match the uh, consumer preferences and what will be, uh, you know, delivering the, the highest outcomes. So I think that that's, that's a perfect point that you make. So I fully agree with that. Um, so I kind of on our next topic here, just looking forward now in terms of uh, post-COVID, let's say um, hopefully soon we're moving into the endemic phase. They keep saying it's going to happen. We're not there yet, but you know, hopefully soon things start kind of uh, stabilizing. So in terms of this post-COVID world, uh, 
What are some of your predictions for the commute? Uh, we talked about the hybrid office. We talked about this complete journey. We talked about uh, density and land use. Where, where do you think we'll be, let's say, um, in the next uh, 18 to 24 months, just from a commuting perspective? Yeah, I think a lot of people would say, well, aren't we, aren't we past COVID? But no, not from I'll a transportation. I'd be careful to say, as somebody would say, I know. This is, I know. <laughs> and from a transportation point of view, things, things, haven't, hey, things haven't stabilized. So um, <laughs> getting out the crystal ball, I would say the, the changes we're still watching for, um, six months ago even, the pendulum was just on the side of, employees have all the power and they don't want to go back. Companies can never make them go back. Um, and now I think already we've seen that, that pendulum swing very hard to say, um, if the company wants you in the office, the company might, might get you in the office, uh, whether you want to be there or not. And I think a lot of companies are realizing, you know what, time in the office, time together, I mean, is a better way of saying it, uh, matters. Um, now we also have seen even if everybody's not back, we've seen traffic trends really shoot up. Um, I think congestion and, and rising more proportionally, more than the proportional rate at which people are going back to the office. So people have gone back to driving. Uh, in my household, I have a former train train taker who's now a driver, but that's probably going to change again as traffic has then built back up to the intolerable level. So. Uh, and <laughs> go back to so the, there's some pendulum swinging here. I think it's going to go you know, in the near term, and I say two years is still near term in the transportation world, um, you're going to see saturated highways and then people going back and saying, you know what, I do need something, a better way to get to work. Um, a lot of people did move farther from their jobs and are going to say, you know, three days a week, maybe I can handle it. Maybe not. Maybe I do even want to take transit for those three days. Um, so. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, you mentioned about people moving further away. So, uh, you know, this kind of harkens back to, you know, the 1960s and almost the back to the land movement where a lot of people just left the city and went, moved to Vermont and to Oregon and all that stuff. But we almost saw a repeat of that two years ago where people were leaving New York and San Francisco and L.A. and, you know, moving out to the desert or moving into the forest and kind of leaving the city. And now we see one, this either return to the city or two, this kind of return to different modes of mobility and reaching this tipping point in terms of congestion on our freeways and highways, albeit some of this congestion is not necessarily just work journeys, which is interesting. That was something I wanted to ask you about too, is that, you know, this kind of, um, let's say a return to 2019 congestion levels. I hate to use the term here, uh, but level of service, you know, uh, you know, D or F or whatever to use the kind of Caltrans terminology. Uh, but we're seeing that, you know, on the 101 freeway in the peninsula, we're seeing that on the 405 in LA and, you know, all throughout the state of California. Um, but a lot of these aren't people commuting anymore. They're just a lot of, let's say, unnecessary trips or just busy trips in, in people just getting out kind of uh, getting out of the house, right? Because, you know, people were really pent up on, during lockdowns and all that stuff. So there's a lot of um, wasteful VMT right now, vehicles, miles traveled. So I think one of the reasons why I pose this question to you is as we see a little more of an equilibrium post COVID, again, I'd like to say, hopefully um, endemic phase 12 to 24 months from now, um, you know, some of these congestion levels adjust, but the, the modes kind of shift back again towards more mass transit and other shared types. So in our households, we can kind of uh, align with some of the uh, demands of employers and employees 
of matching this hybrid work environment because I don't honestly believe we're going to go back to uh, November, December 2019 anymore where it's going to be five days a week in the office. I haven't right. been convinced of that, but it's not going to be the fully uh, great resignation um, prognosis that everyone's going to be working from home and no one's going to be back in the office. So we're going to have this kind of interesting kind of middle ground. And it's just really, uh, everything's in flux right now. And it's it's really hard to see with a crystal ball where, where we'll land, quite honestly. Correct. And, and, and I just, uh, not to critique you, but all of us, I think in the planning profession, kind of forget that there's people who don't work in offices, that work in hospitals, that work in construction, that work in jobs, that they do have to be there every day of, of their work week. And so those trips haven't gone away either. That's and right. all. Yeah, yeah. My, my, my point was a bit, a bit too slanted on the white collar workers. So that, that's a really excellent point you make. And Everybody. They, they had the liberty or the um, flexibility to uh, immediately shift and go digital. But uh, the essential services, the emergency workers, as well as the frontline workers, they never had that option. And even during the height of the pandemic, the first and second waves, they were always front and center. So that, that's a great point you make. And thank you for critiquing me on that, because, you know, I think that's something that the audience needs to know is that um, that level of, you know, um, uh, mobility, you know, interaction uh, has never gone away. And if in anything, the demand for that has only increased, uh, you know, during the pandemic. So, you know, that's, I, I really appreciate this exchange. It's, and it's good for the viewers to kind of, uh, you know, um, kind of participate in too. So with that, I'd like to kind of wrap things up here and uh, kind of open it up to you now and uh, just get some of your closing thoughts. I know I already mentioned the concept of the 12 to 24 month look ahead, but maybe opening up a, a little broader in terms of what you're focused on in Swift Cities. Where do you guys see yourselves maybe in the next two years from now? How is that going to impact uh, transportation and land use, let's say, uh, in Northern California, as well as some other exciting developments you're working on in the U.S.? So just maybe you can share with us some of your ideas. Yeah, we, we didn't even explain what we're doing. And these are, are small vehicles that are autonomous, but they look it would look like a gondola. They travel on a cable. That is the that is the lightest weight, lowest cost way of adding capacity in an urban area. Uh, but they don't travel just in a straight line like a ski resort gondola does, and, and those only go between usually two stations. These are interconnected. They have switching capabilities. They're small vehicles that wait for you at stations, so they're on-demand transit. And then when you get in, they can take you directly to whichever station you want to go to. They can wind their way ac across a complicated network, whether it's a, an airport, a corporate campus, or just serving a connection between, say, downtown and an office area. Um, so... Uh, it's a lightweight way that developers can use to cut cost and add, uh, improve their campuses and, and add office space if they need to or add open space. And you know, we talked about the, the pendulum, the swinging, the trends and that. What I, we didn't talk about was why we have to all work to accelerate these trends. Two thirds of all of our carbon emissions are from the built environment, the physical world and from transportation. Two thirds of everything is just in those two sectors. Uh, and so you and your personal carbon footprint is usually about evenly split, about half from how you live and about half is from how you move around. And I see lots of people working on climate change in both areas, but 99% of them are working on one side of the split or the other. People are working on buildings and construction, people are working on mobility. Almost no one has it soaked in that these two are interrelated and highly interrelated. It doesn't matter if you're self-driving car or your electric airplane 
you know, you can cut emissions on your commute 20 or 30%. We already know that your commute is only a fraction of your trips as we've covered. And if you're creating a land use that spreads people out and that doubles their resource consumption, you haven't improved anything. So you have to treat the two together. Uh, and time is running out, but the, the moment is now, the, the regulatory trends are there, the, the system is there. Um, you mentioned parking minimums being reduced. All of the pieces are falling into place to say, finally, uh, the transportation world and the construction world, the, the real estate world can now start to integrate. And I'm seeing just the tip of that. Uh, 10 years ago, it was housing and transportation that were just beginning to talk really for the first time. And now those are together. So I think that's just about to happen. We just all need to make sure that it happens as fast as we possibly can. I love to use the term. My wife is a psychologist and she focuses on this. The term would be intersectionality. So there's an intersectionality of all these different domains that are starting to converge together towards a higher outcome. And the higher outcome is a um, mitigation or a uh, reduction in um, uh, global emissions as well as carbon footprint. So I think that um, a lot of these interesting concepts, as we mentioned before, that were uh, siloed last 10, 15, 20 years, really interesting developments in new urbanism, interesting developments in housing, interesting developments in mobility like you had mentioned in construction, we're all kept in their own individual spheres, but now this sense of urgency is uh, bringing them front and center, certainly with um, uh, increased uh, multifamily densities in the state of California. So a lot of legislation coming out, parking minimums being eliminated. Um, so we're seeing this uh, pendulum shift and um, we're seeing it become uh, really interesting across uh, disciplines and uh, industries. Everyone's starting to speak along the same lines right now. It's not just engineers anymore or architects or planners or construction, but we're seeing this kind of, um, shall we say, uh, consistency. And I think that has me hopeful that uh, uh, we're, we're really starting to pick up the ball now. So it's 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 a good time to kind of uh, be in this uh, space. But again, um, it's a pressing topic and the urgency uh, means that we must act now. So with that, uh, yeah, I think to, on a sobering note, that's kind of where we're at, uh, certainly. So um, we talked about closing thoughts. What I'd like to talk about now is maybe, uh, Jarrell, maybe you can talk about where we can find you and uh, where you're present on uh, social media, um, Swift Cities, and uh, anything that we can use to uh, connect with you. Yeah, I think we are um, active on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter. Uh, my name is a little hard to spell, so I won't, uh, we'll just say look for Swift Cities, S-W-Y-F-T. Um, and uh yeah, look for us there. We've got our messages about density, about how transportation in the real estate world are going to interact. Uh, I think you'll find those. I think we'll be active now and in, in the coming months and years on guiding people through that. So we do encourage both uh, the LinkedIn and the Twitter subscribers. Really exciting stuff. I'm glad we connected. Um, this is uh, very close to my heart is urbanism, land use and transportation. I really congratulate you on your efforts. Um, I know that you have a winning solution for kind of uh, moving the needle in terms of more sustainable um, land use developments. Um, and again, like I said, it's exciting times to come. So uh, really happy again, Gerald, to have you join us on the City's First uh, podcast. And I just wanna thank everyone for joining us today on our fifth episode. Uh, this is kind of rounds out our let's say first uh, season, this is kind of the conclusion of season one, albeit we only had five episodes. We'll have a full 12 episodes next year. Um, we do this monthly. Um, hopefully, well, maybe we'll have you again for a part two. I'm sure we'll reach out again and have another conversation. But 
just for our audience, um, we, we get our episodes uh, posted really quickly. Um, this will be available on all social media channels, including YouTube for the video content. Uh, audio will be on Google, Apple, uh, Spotify, as well as Amazon. Um, and then we also have a City's First a pod podcast uh, LinkedIn channel as well, too. So thank you, Jarrell, for joining. And thank you to the audience. And uh, have a happy holidays and happy new year. And uh, we'll definitely have you again for a part two. Thanks, Scott. It was great being here. You have a great, great holidays as well. Take care. Bye.